0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Happy Wednesday. I hope everyone's having an amazing week so far. We're going to be talking about three topics specifically today. First up is Major League Baseball's rule changes. We're going to run through attendance, viewership, game time, runs, stolen bases, all the data, and we'll talk through the impact it's having on the sport so far. Then we're going to talk about Mercedes' form the one team. They're building an $85 million campus right outside of London that's going to be their future home. For the next 10, 20, 30 years, we'll talk through some of the business of this renovation itself and then the business of the team and how much it's grown over the last five or six years. And last but not least, we're going to be talking about the NFL draft in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Green Bay was officially selected to host the NFL draft in 2025 at the Spring League meeting, a.k.a. the owners meeting, and we'll run through some of the details about them being the host city. All right, let's get right into it. All right, so I want to start today's podcast by talking about Major League Baseball and its recent rule changes. So most of you probably know what's happened to Major League Baseball over the last what we'll call like 50 years. Baseball was America's pastime. It was the most popular sport by far in the United States for a long, long, long period of time. But now it's third, and it's actually close to being fourth. It's been overtaken by football, American football. It's been overtaken by basketball, and it's close to being overtaken by soccer which sounds crazy, but soccer is obviously on the come up in the United States with the World Cup around the corner, and baseball is at danger of becoming the fourth most popular sport in the United States. And the reasons for this are pretty simple. The game really hasn't innovated that much over the last few decades. They haven't cared about a younger generation. Fans are getting older. And there's been like a societal shift, we'll call it, right? The iPhone debuted in 2007. I think I saw a stat once that the average iPhone user picks up their phone 1,500 times per week. 1,500 times. TikTok is obviously very important today. They introduced 15-second clips in, I think, 2016. And teenagers now spend almost 100 minutes per day on that app. 100 minutes per day, over an hour and a half per day on TikTok. Attention spans have shrunk, is my point. And Major League Baseball is long, 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 long. There's not a lot of action. Even though football games are long, there's action every, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. It's a different game, and baseball has fallen by the wayside. And furthermore... They haven't promoted their stars. Like if you look at the most popular MLB players today, everyone knows about Shohei Ohtani. He's blown up over the last few years being the new, this generation's version of Babe Ruth. But he even only has like 5 million followers on Instagram. Aaron Judge has under 2 million. Mike Trot has just over 2 million. And we look at other superstars across sport. Tom Brady has 15 million. Serena Williams has nearly 20 million. LeBron James, 150 million. Cristiano Ronaldo, 552 million. Obviously, those are in a different stratosphere when it comes to the popularity of soccer, of even tennis, of basketball, and American football. They're head and shoulders above baseball today. But of course, it wasn't always that way. And if we look at attendance, it's even worse. 80 million fans attended MLB games in 2007. Last year, 65 million fans attended games. The average fan per game last year was the lowest it had been in over 25 years. Over 25 years, the lowest attendance Major League Baseball had seen. So what do they do? they introduced a whole host of new rules. The idea was to lower the time limit on games. If you look at the average length of a game of American sports leagues with 82 plus games, The NHL games take two hours and 20 minutes. NBA games take two hours and 30 minutes and MLB games take three hours and three minutes. So they're significantly longer than all the other sports that have a host of games, right? NFL is a little bit different because you're only playing 17 games per year. I would argue that's significantly different than teams that are playing 82 or 162 games per year. Their commitment from a fan perspective is a lot more. So, like I said, what do they do? They want to shorten the game. They want to lower the average fan age of people in their league, like Formula One has been able to do in other sports leagues. And they want to bring fans back to the ballpark. So, they introduced a whole host of things. You guys probably know most of these by now. The pitch clock is the most obvious one. Now, pitchers have 15 seconds to start pitching the ball when the bases are empty or 20 seconds to start pitching the ball when runners are on base. Hitters are required to step into the batter's box within the first eight seconds. And if neither of them comply, there are consequences. The pitcher, if he doesn't comply, the batter is awarded a ball. And if the hitter doesn't comply with the rule, the pitcher is awarded a strike. Now, there's other rules too. There's limited pickoffs. There's defensive shift limits. So you're not able to shift. And they're going to do a whole host of other things around larger bases. They made the bases from 15 inches to 18 inches. It reduced the size or the distance between the two bases by four and a half inches. And the changes have been fantastic. That's the easiest way to put it. So if you look at the data, I wanted to dig through some of this because we're already in the end of May here. There's a significant amount of data that we've already added up over the past few months in the MLB season, and it's all looking pretty damn good. For example, I tweeted this out the other day, and some people were on me. They're like, how do you know this was the pitch clock? How do you know this? Whatever. And I want to explain a little bit in this forum today. Attendance. This past weekend, May 19th through the 21st, over 1.5 million fans attended Major League Baseball games. It was the most attended weekend in April or May since April 7th to the 9th, 2017. So six years. In more than six years, it was the most attended Major League Baseball weekend with 1.5 million fans. It's also the most attended 45-game slate since 2019. May 21 was the highest attended non-opening day of Major League Baseball before the start of the season in 2018 with 546,000 fans. AKA viewership is up a ton this year. Not only viewership, but attendance more specifically. People are coming out to the ballpark. Now, the weekend is one stat, but something I've noticed is a lot more people are talking about their ability to go to games during the week, right? If games are only taking two hours and 30 minutes, the data is two hours and 36 minutes, a 29-minute decrease in games, it used to be three hours and five minutes, now it's two hours and 36 minutes a year every year, so 29-minute or we'll call it 30-minute decrease in game times. This is drastically impacting your ability to go to a weeknight game. You can go to a game at 7 and be out of there by 9 sometimes. You can be out of there by 9.30. If you're able to beat traffic, you're home by 10, depending on where you live, etc. So this has drastically changed the ability for fans to bring their children, to bring themselves to midweek games. And obviously, it's becoming more popular on the weekend too. The biggest increase leaders for MLB teams on an attendance basis, Phillies, number one. They're adding more than 10,000 fans per game. Obviously, some of this has to do with their team. They were in the World Series last year. The Yankees are up 6,000 fans per game on average. The Guardians are up almost 5,000 fans on average. And the Mariners are up about 5,000 fans as well. Now, obviously, Oakland is a a sore thumb. They stick out. They're averaging like five fans per game right now. It's an absolute disaster with the team trying to move. The owner doesn't care. And fans have essentially given up. And I want to be careful about this, right? Like, fans in Oakland are not bad. They're just doing it because why would you give an owner money that's clearly trying to leave? He said it 50 times now, and they are in that process. So I get it. I understand. But they're obviously a negative contributing factor to this. And 20 out of the 30 teams still have seen an increase in attendance this year. So across Major League Baseball, attendance is way up. But more importantly, viewership is up, right? Tickets sell. Merchandise is important. Concessions are important. Parking's important. All that stuff's important. But viewership really drives the money across major professional sports leagues like Major League Baseball. So ESPN Sunday Night Baseball is up 11% year over year. That doesn't really seem like a lot, but that's a lot when you're talking about millions of viewers. 11% year over year. TBS, who's another partner of MLB, their viewership is up nearly 70% year over year for their network games. And MLB Network is even seeing a 4% increase year over year with almost 200,000 average viewers per game. Now, obviously, MLB Network is the least significant of those ones because you have to not only be like a hardcore baseball fan to be watching MLB Network, but the distribution from a cable perspective is less than TBS. It's less than ESPN, obviously. But at the end of the day, viewership is up across the board, whether it's ESPN, TBS, MLB. And this is directly because of the rule changes. People were commenting on my tweet saying, oh, the weather was nice. You think the weather was nice for the first time in six years this past weekend? No, of course not. School just got out graduations happen every single year. this isn't like you know some some new thing. it's directly because of the rule changes and I want to talk a little bit about the impact so I mentioned game times the average MLB game time is two hours and 36 minutes this year that's a 29 minute decrease from 2022 which averaged three hours and five minutes. the game has basically been brought back 40 years 40 years. if you look at the MLB chart from the game time it took over the years, it's just up and to the right like every year year after year after year after year it just got longer and longer and longer. And there's an important caveat to this that some people seem to not understand. The actual game is not being reduced. There's still the same number of outs, the same number of at-bats, all this kind of stuff. The downtime is being reduced. Who wants to stand around and watch a player adjust their shin guard 50 times during an at-bat? No one wants to do that. Who wants to stand around and watch a pitcher step off the mound five times during a single at-bat? No one wants to do that. I understand there's some gamesmanship here and stuff like that but it can still happen with the pitch clock today. I think players are getting adjusted to it and they'll get more comfortable as time goes on. And I think it's a good thing overall. Scoring, that's another big thing this year. It's up 11% from 8.2 runs per game in 2022 to 9.1 runs per game this year. So if you think about average game time is down, but there's more offense, there's more stolen bases. There's 1.4 stolen bases per game this year, which is up from 0.9 stolen bases last year. That's a 55% increase. So again, shorter games, More offense. Same with batting average. Batting average is up four points. The average was 243 last year. It's 247 this year. I think we need to give that some more time, right? The defensive shifts and stuff like that, pitch clock. We'll see who has the real advantage there. The idea was that the batting average would increase a little bit more than that, I imagine. But we'll see. It's a little bit early in the year, and let's give it some more data, and we'll see where it is at the end of the year. But right now, it's up 4 percentage points. And my overall take on this is like, this is amazing for Major League Baseball. This is great. They're bringing in new fans. They're reducing the friction to get involved in the game. More people are allowed to go to weekday games. Now, what can they do? They can decrease the price to go to a game. If you're a family of four, it's gotten ridiculously expensive to attend games, especially in big time markets like Boston or New York or Chicago or L.A. It's just really expensive to go do. Now, there's some teams that are implementing new stuff. I think it was Steve Cohen with the Mets. I think it was $15 for college students to go to games this year, select games. That's awesome. All the teams need to have this. There are other teams that have it. I know Boston's done it for a while. The Guardians have done it for a while and other teams like that. But at the end of the day, you need to make it cheaper. And then they need to get control of the blackouts. People need to be able to watch the teams that they care about, especially in the Midwest where you're blacked out from like three to four different teams at a time. It's absolutely atrocious. They need to get that under control. And you have to allow the fans that want to watch their team to watch the team. But overall, the simplest way to put this is Major League Baseball is on the come up They're doing a great job. I'm super excited for them, and I'm a big fan of the new rule changes. All right, everyone. Before we get into the next topic on today's podcast, I have a quick favor to ask from all of you. Please take out your phone right now and subscribe or follow this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to it, whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google, or whatever. Just take out your phone and subscribe or follow. I was looking at some of the data earlier today, and I noticed that only about 50% of the people that listen to this podcast are currently subscribed or following it. Every time you subscribe, subscribe or follow to a new podcast, it automatically shows up in your feed and you will not miss an episode. This is helpful for me, but it's also helpful for you. So subscribe or follow the podcast. And if you want to share it with your friends, I won't be mad at that either. All right, let's get back into today's episode. All right. The second topic I want to talk about today is the Mercedes Formula One team. I tweeted this out the other day. They're getting an $85 million renovation to their campus. They say they want it to be a state-of-the-art Silicon Valley style campus. Now, for those that don't know, Mercedes is one of the best teams in Formula One. They were winning a bunch of championships over the past decade. They have Lewis Hamilton, George Russell. They're currently behind Red Bull and and even Ferrari in some races and Aston Martin. But they're a very, very, very good team. They have 1,200 employees at this point, and they need more space. They want to renovate this. The team is worth over a billion dollars. The last valuation I saw was like 1.2 billion, and that was two years ago. So with the sport growing, I wouldn't be surprised if they received an independent valuation of 1.5 billion or higher. And I'll talk through in a little bit about why that is from a financial perspective. But I want to give you some details about the new campus, and we'll talk through some of that as well. The campus is located in Brackley, England. It's 70 miles northwest of London near Silverstone. So Silverstone is where the British GP is held. It's 15 minutes away from that track. That's the track that they can practice at and stuff like that. So Mercedes Formula One moved into this facility in 2010 when they returned to Formula One after purchasing Braun GP Team. And they bought out the entire facility. So the facility had other tenants as well up until 2022. And then they bought out the entire facility. So they own the entire property now. And they've had operations on and off over two decades at this facility between engines and stuff like that. So they're now doing this big renovation. It's going to cost $85 million in total. It's going to take a couple of years. Total Wolf says he expects it to be done at the end of 2025. And it's been going on for years. They've already done 30 different projects, they claim. And essentially, they're just counting each room as something else. They've renovated the race bays. They've renovated the machine shop. They've renovated the sub-assembly workshops. They've renovated a bunch of the campus already. But now they're going to be building some new buildings. They're going to be building restaurants. They're going to be building a gym. And I don't know if you guys have seen the renderings yet. You guys all know I am a sucker for renderings, but they look sick. It looks awesome. It's literally a campus. It's like Facebook, where Instagram would be, or Apple, or any of these big tech company campuses. And that's why Total Wolf keeps referring to it as a Silicon Valley style campus. And when you hear Total Wolf talk, it's actually really interesting. He says that he runs a high performance technology company. He doesn't say, I run a Formula One team. He says, I run a high performance technology company, which I think is a fair assessment of where this team is at today and the way that they operate their business. You're going to the racetrack on the weekend. But on the other five or six days a week, and especially during the off-season when there's no other races, he's the CEO of a tech company. That's exactly what he is. They have 1,200 employees when you're not even counting the high-performance motor division and so forth, and he has a big job. So they're building this new campus. And if you look at Mercedes over the past few years, they're growing a lot along with Formula One. I don't want to hash this all out. I think most people probably understand by now. Formula One is growing dramatically in the United States and globally, and the team's Are benefiting drastically too. So if you look at Mercedes specifically, they have over 1,200 or 1,300 employees today. Yeah, 1,200 employees today. When Total Wolf took over the team in, in 2010 or 2012, I guess it was, they had about 300 to 500 employees, depending on how you want to count the different subdivisions. So they've doubled or tripled headcount over the last decade, and revenues have drastically increased too. They were doing $196 million in revenue when Total Wolf took over. Today, they're doing $425 million in revenue, so two to three times more revenue. But more importantly, profit has drastically increased. So for those of you who don't follow Formula One really closely, they implemented a cost cap a year or two ago. And what this did was it essentially leveled the playing field because what had happened historically was teams like Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, et cetera, were spending $500 million a year, while the shitty teams were spending a fraction of that. And the idea was to level the playing field from a competition standpoint, everyone has to be able to spend the same amount of money. So you reduce what the top teams are spending and you get to a point where maybe the lowest teams have to increase their budget a little bit, but it's much more fair and even. And some of the teams have complained about this, right? Red Bull obviously had an infraction where they got a penalty and so forth for this year. And teams like Mercedes are in a difficult position because now they started this year with a car that's not competitive And in past years, maybe what they would have done is just scrap that concept completely and build an entire new car, no matter how much it costs, right? If you're spending $100 million or $200 million on a totally new concept from an engineering perspective, testing, all of that stuff, it's okay because you're going to make that back if your team's good in car sales alone for the Mercedes brand. But this year with the cost cap, you can't do that. But I would argue that this has been really good from a financial perspective. If you just look at Mercedes profit over the last few years in Formula One, they were doing about $15 to $16 million in profit before the cost cap was introduced. Last year, they did $76 million in profit. Their profit increased $60 million in one year with the cost cap, $60 million dollars. So, right, this level sets the playing field, but it also helps the team from a financial perspective. And the whole idea, right, is if you want these franchises or these teams to be worth a lot of money in the future and you want them to trade hands potentially like NFL teams or NBA teams or other leagues like that, you have to get them under control financially. And that's exactly what Formula One has been able to do. Mercedes has 1,250 employees. They do $425 million in revenue. They made $76 million in profit last year. And the team, if I had to guess, is probably worth $1.5 billion today. Now, I've covered this on past podcasts, I've written about it in a newsletter, and I've even done a thread on Twitter. Total Wolf owns a third of the team. He owns a third of the team. The other third is owned by the Mercedes brand, and then the other third, so it's split three ways. Total Wolf owns 33%, Mercedes' parent company owns 33%, and then the chemical company, Ineos, owns 33%. So Total Wolf has made an absolute killing on this deal. He bought it for a fraction of the cost because they wanted him to come run the team. And he said, I need to have, I need to be financially incentivized to do that. And it worked out amazing for him. He is a billionaire now, according to Forbes. The team has grown a lot. The valuation of the team has grown a lot. And now they are investing in the future of the team by building this new campus. They're expecting to double their workforce over the next decade or so. Revenue should increase, profit should increase, and valuation of the team should increase. It's an exciting time to be in Formula 1, and more specifically, it's a really exciting time to be at Mercedes or any of the other top teams in Formula 1. All right, everyone, a quick interruption from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Hyperice. So Hyperice is one of the fastest growing companies in sports. You've probably seen their products by now, but they are the official recovery technology partner of the NBA, MLB, PGA Tour, and UFC and a bunch of different athletes all around the world are using their stuff, like Patrick Mahomes, Erling Haaland, people like that. Now, I'm super pumped about this partnership for one reason. I've been using Hyperice products for years. I use their massage gun and their heated back wrap several times each week. Anytime I have a tough workout or my back's hurting me a little bit, I throw it on, and it is a game changer for my health and wellness. I think the coolest part for me personally is that I can use the same stuff that professional athletes are using. The same thing that Patrick Mahomes uses on the sideline to loosen up his muscles, I can use at home. The same thing Erlen Holland uses on his back to loosen it up before bed, I can use at home. I think that's absolutely incredible, and I highly recommend their stuff. So the best part is they are giving all of you, my podcast listeners, 15% off your order. So start recovering like a professional athlete today. Go to hyperice.com and use code Joe15 for 15% off your order. That's Joe, J-O-E, 15, all caps at hyperice.com. 15% off your order. Let's get back to today's episode. So the last thing I want to cover today is the NFL draft is headed to Green Bay, Wisconsin at Lambeau Field. I'm sure some of you have already seen this news on Twitter or elsewhere. Green Bay was officially selected to host the NFL draft in 2025 at the owner's meeting. The details are pretty simple. Green Bay has been working on getting the NFL draft since 2016. Since the NFL started moving this draft, they've been trying to get it. How this works is it's essentially a bidding process. You're not actually exchanging money, but it's second to the Super Bowl. Everyone wants a Super Bowl, obviously, but Green Bay is never going to get a Super Bowl because of how cold it is during the Super Bowl time period. They don't have a roof. They're never going to get a Super Bowl. So they've been trying to get the NFL draft, which is the second best thing. They've been talking to the NFL directly since 2016, but there's been concerns, reportedly, about the lack of infrastructure in the town, in Lambeau, and around. They didn't have enough hotels. They didn't have enough restaurants. They didn't have enough exhibition spaces, so forth, to withhold what the draft requires. So for those that don't know, Town District is like the area around, it's like a mini city around Lambeau Field. So when I refer to that, that's what I'm talking about. But for argument's sake, it's all Lambeau Field where the Packers play. And what has happened over the last few years? They've invested in the infrastructure. The city has invested in the infrastructure. They've built hotels. they built restaurants. They've opened a bunch of places. And they've talked to the NFL every single year, negotiating with them, saying, we deserve this. We're not going to be getting a Super Bowl. We're one of the most historic franchises. We're the only NFL team owned by the fans and shareholders. We deserve to have the NFL draft. And this is what happened. There's a fun quote here from Packers president and CEO Mark Murphy when he talks about the journey to host the NFL draft. He says, it's very rigorous. It's basically right behind bidding on a Super Bowl. You've got a lot of cities that want to host it because everyone knows the economic impact. This is basically a two-year commercial on all the benefits Green Bay has to offer. And I would agree with that by and large because the Packers are saying they estimate 240,000 people will visit Green Bay for the NFL draft. And the team estimates an economic impact of $94 million statewide and $20 million locally. Now, That's actually kind of low from an estimate perspective of like what we've seen historically. And again, I want to be careful because some of this is like lick your finger, throw it up in the air type deal because no one actually knows what the economic impact is. People put out estimates for everything from stadiums to events to so forth. And a lot of times they end up not being accurate. But when it comes to people traveling into areas, that's true. That's very important. And I think this is huge because Green Bay is an area that a lot of people are going to have to travel into. It's not necessarily like Kansas City. It's not like Chicago. It's not like New York, where it's just going to be all local people. This is going to be people that are traveling into it. It's huge from a tourism perspective. They're going to be spending out-of-state money in-state at hotels, at restaurants, and so forth. So I do think that is important. And when you look at the budget, it's a no-brainer. Green Bay's NFL draft budget will be $7.5 million, which is actually a lot. I think Kansas City this past year spent $3 million dollars. On their infrastructure for the draft, which was huge, like I wrote about it, and they included there was three hundred thousand people in attendance, so they put three million dollars of local taxpayer money to build the infrastructure. There was five hundred semi trucks worth of material, seven and a half miles of fence line, one and a half miles of concrete barriers. There was concerts. There was two hundred speakers, ten thousand square foot video boards. The stage itself in Kansas City was the size of a football field. So, look, this is a big production. It's only gotten bigger. And I tweeted this out when the draft happened this past year, but one of my favorite stories about the NFL is that the NFL draft only moved from Radio City Music Hall because when the NFL went to go book it for the following year, this was, I guess, like, what, 2015, maybe? Yeah, 20. they were in 2015. They went to go book it for the 2016 draft. And Radio City Music Hall said, ooh, sorry, we're double booked. It was for an Easter concert, maybe the Rockettes or something. And that concert not only ended up actually getting canceled, but the NFL basically took their ball and went home and said, sorry, we're going to leave. We're not going to be doing the draft at Radio City anymore. Their second best option was to take the show on the road. Now, I would argue that they didn't actually know how this was going to go. It was kind of a test to see and it went so well that now this is how it operates. So Radio City Music Hall lost out because I imagine saying no to the NFL. You just don't do that. The draft has since been in Chicago, Philadelphia, Dallas, Nashville, virtual during COVID in 2020, Cleveland in 2021, Las Vegas in 2022, Kansas City this past year in 2023. It'll be in Detroit next year in 2024, and then Green Bay in 2025. So I think this is super exciting. The draft is actually going to be held at Lambeau Field. It's going to be the city-owned complex next to Lambeau Field that's called Titletown. There's going to be public spaces, shops, restaurants, residential and commercial real estate involved in the deal. So there's going to be places for people to stay. You're going to be able to eat there. There's going to be concerts. It's going to be a show, just like all the other stuff. And the best part about this is that Green Bay only has a population of 110,000 people, 110,000 people. So if there's 300,000 people visiting Kansas City and Las Vegas, that's triple the population of the city during the NFL draft. So you can expect the population to triple during the NFL draft in 2025 in Green Bay. And this is huge for hotels there. Green Bay itself only has 4,600 hotel rooms compared to 150,000 in Las Vegas and 36,000 in Kansas City. Right. So let me say that again. Las Vegas, who hosted the NFL draft, has 150,000 hotel rooms. Kansas City has 36,000 and Green Bay has 4,600. 4,600. 4,600. So those rooms are obviously going to be really expensive. There's just not a lot of infrastructure there. They've been building it over the last few years, but it is what it is. And they're going to benefit from this. There's anywhere between, like, if you look at the economic impact and the number of visitors, the most visitors was Nashville in 2019. They got 600,000 visitors, which is by far and away more than anyone else. It's actually double anyone else. Kansas City got 312,000 and Las Vegas got 300,000. No one else was even close to 600,000. So Nashville has been the biggest by far they estimate that they got a $225 million economic impact. Everyone else is kind of in that like 50 to 150 range. The low end is Chicago in 2015 at 44 million. And then the higher end of that was Dallas with 125 million, Las Vegas with 130 million, Kansas City with 120 million. So It's going to be a big deal for Green Bay. People are going to be traveling in there. They're going to be paying a lot for hotel rooms. They're going to be eating at restaurants. And I'm more just excited because Green Bay is one of the most historic franchises in the NFL. As I mentioned before, the fans are shareholders in the team. They are the owners of this franchise. There's not a billionaire owner. They're never going to get a Super Bowl. But there's a lot of history. There's a lot of character at Lambeau Field. And I'm excited for people to be able to go there, for people to see it in person, for the draft attendees to go there. It's going to be cold, right? It's going to be cold. I don't know. I can actually look it up right now. What is the average temperature in Green Bay during, what is it, February? The average temperature in Green Bay, Wisconsin during February is a high of 29 and a low of 10. So it's going to be cold, but I'm sure they'll figure it out. Part of it will probably be indoors. There will be heaters. There will be fires, all that kind of stuff. They'll be fine. They'll figure it out. And it'll be fun. It'll be a little bit of a shift because you can't go to the same cities every single time. They've been to Kansas City. They've been to Las Vegas. They've been to Philly. They've been to Chicago. They've been to Dallas, Nashville, and so forth. And actually, in 2025, I think Green Bay was the only option because this isn't something that gets voted on by the owners necessarily. It just gets decided on. And that's like a weird way of saying it, but essentially, the NFL just awards it to someone. And Green Bay was the only one trying for 2025, so it got approved by the owners, right? So it gets told where it's going to go, and then the owners, I think, approve it. But look, every city is going to want this. If you're not going to be able to get a Super Bowl, you obviously want the NFL draft. It's the next biggest thing. Taxpayers are willing to pay low seven figures, call it 3 to 5 to 6 to $7 million for a potential $100, $200 million return in economic impact. Every governor, every mayor in the country would make that trade, and it's no surprise that Green Bay is doing it too.